the mid 70s was depending on your perspective either the the greatest or the worst time in New York's history and I think arguably it was a little of each It was a very vibrant time it was also a very dangerous New York but it was not yet a New York that was real estate driven because prices were low so we could live cheaply we could produce and have part-time jobs and do two jobs at once the art job and the make a living job and it was smaller so that when you went out you ran into almost everyone you knew and the conversations were constant I'm Carrie Mae Weems welcome to Artists Among Us a podcast from the Whitney Museum of American Art that reimagines American art and history in this five-part season We're looking at the changing landscape of the meatpacking district of New York through the lens of the artist David Hammond's sculpture, Days In. In this episode, we look at the meatpacking district through the lens of the LGBTQ community. 1970s New York is famous for its mix of creativity, social action, upheaval, unrest, and change. Artists who filled the city were making work and constantly collaborating. Industries that had long been based in the city were slowly moving away, and this left behind enormous loft spaces that would become the homes and studios for artists. It was in this climate that artist Gordon Ryder Clark chainsawed openings into the floor of an enormous warehouse on Pier 52 in the Hudson River, creating a work of art that he called Days In. The work was on the edge of the meatpacking district, but at the time, there were fewer and fewer meatpackers who actually lived and worked in the area. Another set of changes impacted the neighborhood as well. These had their root in the nearby West Village towards the end of the 1960s. That neighborhood had long been a place where members of the queer community socialized, but it wasn't a free and or open environment. Charlie, if straight people can do it, why can't we? No, really, if straight people can do all this carrying on and holding hands and kids in the park, why can't we do it? All right. They ain't no better than I am. The police routinely harassed, arrested, and fined queer people leaving marks on their permanent records and often outing them to their families and their workplaces. In June of 1969, the police raided the Stonewall Inn, arresting 13 of the patrons. Over the next six days, lesbian, gay, and transgender protesters came together in resistance. I do not believe in revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. In the wake of the Stonewall uprising, the fight for LGBTQ rights intensified, and there was a new sense of sexual freedom. By the time Maddox Clark started work on Day's End, that freedom was finding expression in the meatpacking district. Historian Andrew Berman 
There was this sudden profound freedom that gay men had that they'd never had before. So there was definitely an explosion of sex in the neighborhood. And the meatpacking district was really an epicenter for that in a lot of ways. Photographer Efren Gonzalez has been photographing queer culture in New York for decades. This was at a time where you could go in and discover your sexuality. That's what I was doing in the meatpacking. I was discovering my sexuality. When you live on Long Island and go to Catholic school, and you know, what is, what is your sexuality? Your sexuality is whatever they tell you it is. Then you come here and you find men going into a hole in a wall. What's in the hole in the wall? Men having sex. And you begin to realize, I want to go in that hole in the wall. I want to go into that bar. You may be scared because you have no idea what's going on, but you still have that desire. You still have that thing inside you that says, I want to go in that hole in the wall. Imagine for a moment the 1970s, 1970 New York, particularly the west side where the city meets the Hudson River. Educator and Riverkeeper President Paul Calais. The Greenwich Village waterfront was forsaken. It was littered with abandoned cars. The pier heads and the sheds were rotting and beginning to collapse into the Hudson. Critic Jonathan Weinberg. One of the things that happens at this point is that the uh, West Side Highway, there's this truck that goes, who shouldn't have even been on the West Side Highway, and it creates this big hole. The former highway became a kind of wall between the piers and the city, so that you had to work hard to get to the water's edge. A lot of times ruins, dilapidated places, exist on the edges of the city. You have to go out to them, right? Uh, what was extraordinary about this is that it was right in the center, uh, only of, right, right next to some of the richest real estate in the country. We uh, have these incredible pictures of these pier structures that are sort of collapsing onto themselves, that are kind of empty. People are using them, they're sunbathing on them. So there's a sort of sense that this is a place where the basic rules don't apply in which you can kind of escape from those rules, whether it means you can have certain kind of sex or you can be naked. NYU professor of media studies, Laura Harris. Where certain forms of sociality, certain forms of social and sexual encounter that were not otherwise accommodated by the city found a place and found opportunity for expression. People talk about the piers as being abandoned. That's a description, the abandoned piers. And, you know, in many ways they weren't abandoned, they were being repurposed by artists. There was also homeless people who lived there. There were sex workers. There were all kinds of activities that were going on in those places. That's part of the backdrop for Monta Clark's practice, I think, being tempted to intervene in some ways by opening up what he considered abandoned structures to new possibilities. And often they weren't fully abandoned, as in the case of Day's End, where people were actively using that space. They were not considered legitimate users. Those were, those, their uses were 
criminalized, but they were still actively using the space. Bomb magazine editor Betsy Sessler. I would go on exploratory walks through New York with Gordon Monta Clark because he would be deciding what he was going to film or if he was going to do a piece in that particular instance. And we were walking on the High Line, and it at the time was a shanty town. It was a home for homeless men, mostly homeless men. And I went, gosh, Gordon, should we be here? And he said, just remember, they are more at risk than you are. And there is a danger that, you know, Mata Clark mentions and others mention that there are muggers who take advantage of people who are not otherwise always in a position to immediately protect themselves. So there is a lot of signage up, warning other people about muggers, you know, taking care of one another, watching out for one another in the space. There was a gay guy who, who published a newsletter and also spray painted warnings on the walls of the buildings, warning gay men not to go into them and that they would be mugged. And I, I love that sort of idea because they knew he knew that the police at that point were not arresting gay men for trespassing like they would have in the but but they didn't seem to care if they got killed or you know something bad happened to them or or they were mugged, right? Activist Egypt Labeja was a star of the ballroom scenes on the piers. People that were down here were targeted at times because of who they were. That's why we never stayed alone. You always walk with someone. Um, you kept in contact. If you're going somewhere, you let someone know, this is where I'm going, especially at nighttime. You sort of developed this um, kind of interesting parallel worlds there, which was the the meat packers who typically arrived at four o'clock in the morning and worked until about noon, and the um, the club goers and the bars that opened in the sort of late evening hours and and uh, often operated until the sort of wee hours of the morning. And typically in the afternoon into the early evening, the streets of the neighborhood were pretty empty and deserted. The most dangerous thing were the dumpsters that were full of lard, rendered fat, that were leaking. And there would be like a layer of lard on the sidewalk dripping into the gutter. And imagine you're wearing like your best leather, your finest domination gear, and you have to tippy-toe through this layer of slick lard, hoping and praying you don't slip and fall down. The pier was a hangout spot both night and day, a place for cruising, reading, relaxing, and having sex. By the early 1980s, artists like Peter Hujar, David Wanarovich, and Tava would become known for mixing sex and art making on the piers. But when Matter Clark made Days In, Pier 52 wasn't a place that people went looking for avant-garde sculpture. I had no idea that, that Matter Clark actually had made this now famous site-specific work of art in the same place where so many gay men would go for anonymous sex or to sunbathe. And the other thing about the work, which I think is so interesting, is how the work disappeared in an interesting way into the landscape that... Um, so many of the people who photographed it told me that they didn't know that it was a work of art. They didn't even know, you know, they just thought it was part of the structure of the building. 
the triumphal arch that nobody knew was a triumphal arch. The photographer taking the picture without knowing what it is. Tom Finkel-Perot. I mean, I feel like works like Day's End were not seen by many people. I've never met anybody who's seen it. And that's, that's not true. I met one person. But uh, it was a gesture. And then sort of the friends got to know that it was happening. But it became legendary. You know, it was a very photogenic work because it was this, you know, intervention in this space. Matt Clark talks about that in an interview, how he anticipates in any particular work that he does that it is going to change and disappear in some ways, even as usually it's a ruin that allows him to do the kind of cunning he's going to do because somebody's not going to, in a beautiful new house, they're not going to allow Matt Clark to come and split a beautiful new house. He had to find buildings that nobody wanted, or he said he thought nobody wanted, that he could do his thing to. Most people have only seen the work through photographs or films, including some of the beautiful, haunting photographs made by the artist Alvin Beltrop. Here's artist Glenn Ligon. I never saw Matta Clark's Day's End, the pure piece. Uh, never saw it in person. My understanding of it mostly is through Beltrop photographs. Him taking photographs on that pier because that pier was a cruising site. And so I sort of learned about Matta Clark through Baltrop, but also learned about what the West Side Piers were through Baltrop. So those two things are kind of fused in my head. Alvin was a Navy veteran, taking photographs in New York City, especially around the piers. And one day he was introduced to Randall Wilcox, who eventually became the trustee of the Alvin Beltrop Trust and knows his work probably better than anyone. After about 10 minutes of looking through his work, I was just immediately, you know, stunned by it and all, by all the stories that he was telling me. And I said to myself, wait, this man is, is a genius. This stuff needs to be, be in a museum. In a nutshell, I would say that he's one of the most underrated photographers and visual artists of the last part of the 20th century. Not everyone, of course, felt that way about Alvin's work. These days, of course, the work is revered. It's shown in exhibitions and galleries around the world. But in the 1970s and for most of his life, Alvin was really treated as an outsider or worse. Here he is speaking to Randall Wilcox in a recording from 2000. One woman says, as I turn the pages of your portfolio, I can honestly say, I'm afraid of your portfolio. And I said, why? She says, because I'm afraid of seeing my husband or my son pop up on one of your photographs. And she said, you must be a real sewer rat that you crawl around at night and photograph things like this. So I have to consider you a real sewer rat type of person. And I don't know if I like you. I closed my book and walked out. Alvin grew up in the Bronx and has always been interested in capturing parts of the city that people don't often see. And the piers seem to be an ideal place for all that to come together. As Randall said, it was a place where all of his interests converged. There was uh, nude, sex, crime scenes, art by other artists who uh, worked at the piers, 
he would pack his van up with food, you know, alcohol, some firearms, maybe maybe a couple of joints, and just spend like two or three days at the piers. And he would use his van as a place to to sleep and change film and change clothes. And yeah, he he became really obsessed. The result is an incredible archive of images, capturing something that very few people have. And when it comes to days in, Alvin captured it better than anyone. Pier 52 is obviously uh, the famous pier that Gordon Matter Clark converted into um, his installation Days End. Now, although Al photographed the Days End installation, specifically the cuts that Matter Clark made into the um, various parts of the warehouse, he never mentioned Matter Clark. So I, I don't know if he actually knew that it wasn't actually an artwork. A film, a porn film made by Arch Brown, this director, and there's a scene, it, sa- it takes place on the piers. Part of it takes place at Pier 52. Critic, Jonathan Weinberg. And there's a moment where the camera pulls back and you see the great cut of the arc of, of Day's End. And these men are cruising in front of uh, Matta Clark's work. And it makes you realize that that's how that work would have been seen in the day. You know, a few months later, uh, sort of fell back into that, what he called it, S&M world, that gay world. Any number of everyday people and artists made work and took photographs on Pier 52. And as fate would have it, any number of them did, in fact, see and experience day's end. They just didn't know that they were looking at art. Baltrop is probably aesthetically does some of the most beautiful photographs. And this is another photographer, Leonard Fink, who was a lawyer for the uh, Transit Authority, of all things. But then on the weekends, we'd go take photographs. And then the the two peer photographers that I really have gotten to know really well are, are Shelley Seacom, who is a, a professional photographer, takes wonderful color pictures. And then there's this other wonderful man who I was just, he was such a sweet man named Frank Hallam, who was, you know, I don't know if the word artist is the right word to use. I mean, he didn't think of himself as an artist. He thought what he was doing, he was taking slides because he thought this was a world that would disappear and it needed to be saved. And each photographer has their own thing. There's a series of photographs of these two young men. Al said that they were kicked out of their homes for being gay. And he documented them talking to this other homeless person at the piers. He was a schizophrenic, like, street performer. So in the photographs, the guy's, like, showing these, these two runaways where they can stay, where they can use the bathroom, where they can wash themselves, so on and so forth. That's one series of photographs. But, um, I mean, there are just so many different little stories that, that go to, like, various images. So, yeah, it's, it's, that's one of the reasons why the collection is just so fascinating, because of all of the, the little details that are attached to everything. You know, one of the ways that I think of the peers is this sort of handing off, you know, so you have you have a kind of sexual promiscuity that's happening with people literally having sex on the peers, but you also have a kind of artistic promiscuity, a passing on of one artist to another artist, or different artists meeting, you know, in surprising ways. Pier 52 was a special place. But it wasn't just the art that made it come alive. It was the raw energy of the people. Alvin's pictures depict an astonishing level of personal sexual freedom. And given the fear along with the hostility directed towards homosexuals at the time, this is actually of particular importance. 
In these pictures, Pier 52 is a place where queer people could express themselves fully, sexually, and otherwise. Photographer Efren Gonzalez. On the weekends, it was full of men. You'd have guys just sitting there cruising. You'd have people bring some Chinese food, and you would eat it, drink a beer, smoke a little something, watch the sunset. It was a great place just to sit and watch the sunset. And uh, people would come in with little towels, and they would put the towels down. They would sunbathe on these rotting wooden piers. At night, people would just sit there and look at the stars or cruise one another. You could sit on the pier all the way at the end, be all alone, and look back and you can see the city all lit up at night. That was really nice. So we're walking through and we could see remnants of the night before, you know, maybe some wine bottles. But then we go out onto the pier and the sun is shining and there are some lounge chairs and some umbrellas. And you have this beautiful view of the Hudson River and people are sunning. It's like, whoa. You know, a lovely beach resort in New York City. I love going down on a Sunday afternoon. And one thing that I did was I heard stories that they were going to tear down the piers. They were going to tear down the piers, and I decided this will be my last chance. So I got a camera, some color film, and I went to the piers on a Sunday afternoon during daylight, and I went in. And even during daylight, you still had men wandering into these empty, huge structures in daylight, wandering around, cruising. And I would photograph these people as they walked through the spaces. And as I was finishing up the roll of film, a guy came up to me on a bicycle. He was riding a bicycle inside the piers. He was naked. I have no idea where he kept his clothes. He was naked, just riding a bicycle around, As the queer community in the area expanded into the meatpacking district, gay bars and nightclubs began popping up all over the neighborhood. But there was one single person that actually owned much of the land. A very eccentric guy named William or Bill Gottlieb, who just bought up buildings throughout the lower west side of Manhattan and just kind of sat on them and did nothing with them, which given the value of real estate in New York is obviously quite unusual. Because of the empty spaces available, due to the fact that William Gottlieb did not upgrade the buildings, became a natural magnet for all kinds of underground fetish clubs and bars. So the mine shaft opened up, the lure, the anvil, the hellfire club, the toilet. Uh, these were places, a lot of places just come and went. Some were lasted for years. Arthur and historian Luke Sant. So I remember going to a waterfront bar called Peter Rabbit and this would have been about 1973, that's when I learned about the code of bandanas and back pockets, for example, and it was bewildering. There was like, you know, there were two possible pockets and like 20 color choices, and between the, the which pocket and which color, and also like maybe something about the droop and the hang of the, the bandana, it could mean like an encyclopedia of things. Yeah, so that was really pretty amazing. If you come from a place where your sexuality doesn't exist, if you come from a place where your sexuality is considered abnormal and evil, you come here and you find out it's perfectly normal. It's ordinary. You could dress up, you could be Ernest Borgnine in a bad dress, 
and you can go to one of these clubs and they say, Geraldine, we haven't seen you in weeks. Come on down, we love you. And that was it. You were loved. Despite the fact that you were in a bad dress, we don't care. You know, you tell great jokes. You're a nice person, we love you. The meatpacking district remained a safe haven for decades before many of the buildings were sold off and the clubs began closing. Filmmaker Elegance Bratton directed the 2019 film Peer Kids, a documentary about homeless, queer, and trans youth living on the pier. You know, when I was 16, my mom kicked me out of the house for being gay, and I'm from New Jersey. So you will never forget it, because I grew up kind of close to New York. So when you're broke and you're close to New York, you get on the train and you just go around New York City and you look at stuff. And so that's what I did when I got kicked out. And when I was on the train, I saw these three black gay men, or what I had assumed to be black gay men, having the time of their lives, just like reading each other and like cutting up and, you know, being fierce and fabulous. And I didn't even know you could act that gay in public. So I was like, where are they going where they can be such, you know, blatant homosexuals? And they led me to the pier. And, you know, it was the first place I'd ever felt like home. You know, I think home is where one is most deeply understood. And when I entered that space, people got me right away. Family. That's the best way I can say it, family, because it was one for all, all for one. If they ate, I ate. If I ate, they ate. If there was a problem with someone on the outside, we all would come and deal with it at the same time. We washed clothes together. We, we did everything together because that's all we had was each other. It wasn't like, you know, you can go out and find someone to help you because there was no one there to help you. Activist Stephanie Rivera was a founding member of Fierce, an organization that works to empower queer youth of color. It was just jam-packed with people. It didn't matter if it was cold. It didn't matter if it was, it was like there was always people and it was, I want to say it was almost like an outdoor nightclub sometimes. It was like, you know, like there was a lot of people. It was, you got a good socialization while just hanging out. It was very carefree. It was just, it was very different. And, you know, you had an ability of being able to connect with a lot of people in this very organic way that was just very different from today. Personally, it made me, it made me love me. I can put it like that. It made me love me for who I am. It made me realize that I am somebody. I am just as important as anyone else. My life does matter. Before you come down here and you didn't realize, because you, like I said, where I grew up, everything was very low key. You tried to keep yourself isolated. That's why I was isolated. So when you when I got down here and I saw all of this stuff that I can only imagine in my brain that I would want to do, when I saw all of it, it was like, oh my God, this is a whole new world that I can actually get into. So yes, I'm going to jump in and I'm not coming out. And that's, it's been like that ever since. They were the ones that really rallied for me, especially a lot of us, we don't have a connection to our blood family. Um, a lot of us are given a hard way to go once we 
step into our truth and we go against the grain of what the family thinks is correct, then we have to kind of fend for ourselves usually. It's very rare that you have someone who's supported by their family. It's kind of slowly changing, but it's not a thing. So for me, the impact that this community had was that they they didn't treat me like a throwaway, and they really gave me that second opportunity to be able to prove who I was as a person. People have to understand that there's a lot of history in this pier as far as the homelessness, and not just that, as far as the LGBTQ community is concerned, period. This is safe haven for anyone to come to at any time, whether you're homeless, whether you're, you could be rich and famous. If this is a place where you want to feel comfortable, this is where you come, where there's no judgment. Efren Gonzalez. 1980, AIDS was just beginning to break out and spread all over the place. Laura Harris. It was really not known at that point at all. You know, looking back, one could say, uh, I mean, that's, well, part of what people mourn when they talk about the devastation that AIDS produced was, was the loss of that, of that opportunity to, to explore sexual life in these ways. That's part of what AIDS really shut down in some ways because of the devastation that that community faced. I, I don't think at the time there was, you know, anyone had any inkling that that was coming. There was this overwhelming fear. You would meet somebody, you wanted to have sex with somebody, but there was a tremendous fear in the background of AIDS and how it was basically killing the gay community. Every week you'd hear somebody passed away or you lost somebody here. I have straight friends who lost relatives because they were gay. And uh, I remember artists who I used to admire, I used to go see their shows, well, they died. So one by one, you began losing people in the community. So it had an effect. But in the back of your head was always this, this fear of AIDS. It was horrible to see, you know, you can see somebody today and in two weeks they're dead or they're in a hospital and they're withering away um, because they, don't, they didn't have all of the medications and stuff they have today. Every week there was someone new dying. You was hearing so-and-so passed away, so-and-so got died. Now, what happened was a lot of places, the mine shaft was shut down, the anvil was shut down, a bunch of others around the city were shut down. The Hellfire, Frank and Lenny of the Hellfire saw what was going on and they decided an action. They shut themselves down. They shut down the Hellfire, boarded it up, and began renovating it. Took out the glory holes, the back rooms, the sex places. When they reopened about three months later, they had a new name, The Vault, and they had a policy, no sex. You could spank, jerk somebody off, but you could not have sex. Even if you were married, you could not have sex. By doing so, they managed to stay open and not be shut down by the city. That is a very touchy subject for me because through that whole AIDS epidemic, I lived through it and I'm still here. And a lot of people say, how is it that you are still here? This so I, I, can't, I can't even explain that part. I am still here, I'm still negative. Elegance Bratton. There's this really great essay by Robert Simber. It's called, I think, Vanishing Disappearance in the Age of AIDS, something like that. In the essay, he speaks about the old structures of the pier, the piers themselves, right? The kind of rundown 
wooden structures, and he argues that the gay political identity was formed through public sex in those spaces. You know, there's so many lessons from the past that it's important to, to learn, both in terms of things that we want to hold on to that too easily can be uh, lost or forgotten, as well as things that have dramatically changed that we're grateful for how much they've changed. But we want to make sure that we don't take for granted that where we're at now is the way things will always be or always were. And that often involves a firm rooting in an understanding of our history and the past and what it looked like. It sort of breaks your heart. When I look at certain photographs, I begin to count who's dead, who's dead, who's dead. So I'm beginning to find a lot of friends who are gone. Other people are moving on, they've gone to different cultures. They've left the city. Everything changes. You have to accept the fact that life changes everything. And yeah, it was great back then, but it was also difficult back then. You have to move on. I mean, the internet changed everything. Think of it in this way. In 1980, if you wanted to find one of these clubs, you had to get into a car, drive down here, or take a taxi down here, get out, walk down these streets trying to find the address, then walk down the staircase or try to walk in through the door of these places. And when you, once you're inside, you're amongst a whole bunch of people where you could smell them, you could hear them, and it's a human touch to it. That's, I think, was what made the sexuality at the time so interesting. It was a human touch because you had to be in contact with these people. You're not just a face on a screen. You're not just a friend on Facebook. You had to be there. When the peers went down, things shifted for both the community that frequented them and for the meatpacking district itself. And several things contributed to this change. One of them was that the major landowner, William Gottlieb, died. He died, and he died without a will. And so there was suddenly this tremendous concern and speculation about what would happen to all of these properties that he owned in the meatpacking district that had been kind of allowed to just sort of stay as they were and not be developed like so much around it now that he was no longer there to be this kind of uh, unintended preservationist. And in fact, since he died and the legal issues around his, uh, his estate have been resolved, a lot of those properties have since been developed, which is one of the reasons why in the last 20 years there's been such a dramatic change in the, in the meatpacking district. Energy changes. A while ago, some friends of mine were, they were going to a party, they were all dressed up in fetish wear. They were walking down the West Side Highway when a bunch of mothers began to attack them. They didn't want disreputable people on their block. Queer life wasn't on David's mind when he sent his idea for Days End to the Whitney Museum. But a public sculpture always draws some of its meaning from the site where it's located. The skeleton structure that David Hammonds is building evokes that memory for me. So when I see the skeleton of that, I'm just grateful that that's not going to be lost, that people will be able to walk by these skeletons and ask themselves, why is this here? And from that question, they will discover the people who've laid down their lives to create the freedoms that they enjoy today. Catherine Sivik 
I think the sculpture offers this opportunity to capture the imagination and to kind of burn its way into the brain, like those other things that are gone, and to always be present. I think it's a very kind of magical piece in that it's both permanent but gone, and it's remembering something that's no longer there, and it too is also of another time. It's evocative without being literal, which is important. I think it creates space for people to imagine it into something new. And hopefully it'll inspire people to look for more ways to claim public space. I feel like he's reclaimed this space for all those people who died of AIDS and who fell in the water, who for whatever reason were not able to kind of see the result of the risk that they were taking. Now it's there. I think it's really, really profound and gorgeous. You can never get them back, but you still sort of have them. So maybe that's a good way to think about ephemerals as, as a thing. It's something that you had that's gone and you'll never get it back, but you also always have it. So there's something perhaps in the piece that that evokes. Stephanie Rivera. What of the community remains? I would probably say the cobblestone streets. <laughs> that's about it. I mean, it's sad. It's like if I had to like describe what this neighborhood was to, to now, it's like night and day. You have the big Gansevoort Hotel where a parking lot used to be, where the Sephora, it used to be, it was, it was just an abandoned, like dilapidated building. The fancy restaurant across the street from there was this BDSM club. But it's changed a lot, especially as far as like when you look over to the piers, you don't see the crowds that used to come out here. It was heavily Black Latinx. And, and the thing was that before you could get from 7th Avenue all the way down to the West Side Highway, it was like, it would take you a while to get there because you were constantly getting stopped if you knew people. And, you know, it was always that type of vibe. You also had a lot of establishments that were all up and down Christopher Street that were primarily for us that kind of vanished. You also had sex shops. Those are gone. So it's very posh in comparison to what it used to be. It's the way things are. You know, life changes everything. So yes, we had a wonderful time here. And that time is gone. You move on to the next uh, wonderful time. You have been listening to Artists Among Us a podcast from the Whitney Museum of American Art. In the next episode of this five-part series, we will look at how radically the coastline has changed in this part of Manhattan. Close your eyes and imagine Manhattan 400 years ago. To learn more about the stories you've heard here, visit whitney.org podcasts. You'll also find Artists Among Us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, please rate the show. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this podcast. Luke Sant, Catherine Sievet, Betsy Sussler, Laura Harris, Jonathan Weinberg, Paul Gallet, Glenn Ligon, Andrew Berman, Efren Gonzalez, Tom Finkelpearl, Randall Wilcox, Egypt Labeja, Stephanie Rivera, and Elegance Bratton. Special thanks to El Nicochea, Sofia Ortega Guerrero, Eliza Senna, Jackie Foster, and Helena Gusick. Original music for Artists Among Us and Day's End was created by Daniel Carter and his collaborators. This podcast was produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Katenjian, Katie McCutcheon, Jeremiah Moore, Mawena Tendar, 
and Philip Wood. It was produced in collaboration with the Whitney Museum of American Art, including Anne Bird and Emma Quaitman. Thank you for listening.